Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new year and a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Is that basically it? Yeah, that was kind of how it goes. Bum, 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 bum. That's my vocal timpani. Ba, 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 I could try with a, a, a more purely vocal brass, like a... The intonation isn't quite as good on that one. I liked the it. The timbre was great, I though. I liked it. Good job, um, man. I do, I do like a good vocal brass. <laughs> Well, in any case, what, what was that selection? What was that piece, Naomi? Can you drop some knowledge? That is Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra. It is a symphonic tone poem. Famous, it, of course, for being featured heavily in um, Stanley Kubrick? Yeah. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Indeed. With the monkeys and the bones. Yes. Right. And the big stone thing. Yes. I've actually never seen that movie. So that I feel like that theme has become associated in popular culture with like origin of man or mm-hmm. something like that. Yes. Yes. Like the evolution of man. Because of its use in that film. Right, right. And in today's episode, we are talking about the origin of opera. What? The whole nearly shebang. As, nearly as important as the origin of man. Basically, origin of man, then origin of opera. That's the next. Yes. You skip, skip the wheel, skip the lever, skip the printing press. Opera. <laughs> Straight to opera. Straight and to le- opera. Level of importance. Yes. So, and shall we just do? We just dive right in. What, we're gonna toss else? it. We're gonna toss it right to Naomi. I'm really gonna love this episode because Kyle and I have literally done no work whatsoever <laughs> for it. So let's right. go. I'm ready. It's really atypical for me to, to not prep <laughs> anything. Not prep anything. Right. Okay. I kind of so, want, want this to start with like a, in the beginning, there was a, re, a renaissance. In the or, beginning, or we were in the renaissance. No, say in the beginning, it was dark. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then opera turned on the light. Turned on the light. But well, yes. Kind of, in a way. I mean, in the beginning, we are in the Renaissance. Okay. The Renaissance. The Renaissance, depending on how pretentious you are. Yes, towards the end of the Renaissance. And we are in Italy. And there is a group of men that meet and gather together regularly to talk about art and life and intellectual pursuits and our understanding of these things and they are called the Florentine Camarata. Oh. The Florentine Camarata. Do we yes. know this the names in, of anybody? We do. Okay. So this the, the time period that we are in is the end of the 1500s mm-hmm. and this is a group of men in Florence that were very influential and interested in the role of music and drama and the arts in society. And there were some very famous people in the group. Uh, the main patron or the person who kind of formed it was Count Giovanni de Bardi. Mm-hmm. And famous members of the group include Giulio Caccini, Pietro Strozzi, Vincenzo Galilei, who is the father of Galileo Galilei. 
Dang. Oh. Yes. And Caccini, is that the father of Francesca? That is the father of Francesca Caccini. Bringing it all back. Yep. Would you look at that? Also, some perhaps less famous members, but equally important, Ottavio Renuncini. We'll talk about him a bit more. And Cristoforo Malvezzi, Alessandro Striccio, and uh, Jacopo Corsi, and Jacopo Perry. So, amongst literally, others. Literally no way to keep all of those names straight. No, nope, I, I forgot No, it's, it's a whole bunch of Italian guys that are... Galileo. Meeting yeah. in Galileo count- Galilei's dad and Francesca Caccini's dad. Right. So, okay, so it's important that we just remember that we are aware that... The origins of opera, there's actually several strands that we have to talk about. There's really not one particular point where all of a sudden someone was like, I'm going to create this new thing, Uh and they didn't think of this in a vacuum. It was one of those things where there was a point where this group of men, the Florentine Camerata, decided to experiment and create this new type of musical, dramatic, theatrical experience. Um, but it had roots in other things that were going on at the so, time. Yeah, what was the, the popular music of, of that time? Like madrigals and stuff? Well, they're definitely madrigals. Mm-hmm. They were definitely um, solo monody is what they called it. And so if you think about when we did the Barbara Strozzi episode, we talked about her writing like soloistic cantatas mm-hmm. that were very dramatic. And so this was also popular at this time and where like a singer could accompany themselves on an instrument. And there was also... Leading up to this time period, the in sec, in sacred culture, there was a big history of like morality plays and that type of thing in the church, or like kind of theatrical reenactments of biblical stories mm-hmm. that sometimes mm-hmm. had music. And then there were also this whole genre of things called the intermedio or intermedi, which were kind of like intermission entertainment between acts of plays or large sections of spoken plays Mm -hmm. and the intermediate often had musical accompaniment and they would be kind of spectacular sometimes and so this was these are all the different types of kind of theatrical musical things that had a long history before we get to the end of the 1500s okay but then at the end of the 1500s this group of men the florentine camarada in italy in their intellectual discussions about art and music and theater they were very interested in the ancient Greeks and what the ancient Greeks thought about all of these things. And they came to the conclusion that they felt that the ancient Greeks must have sung all of their theater instead of speaking it. Why and did they think that? They basically just misinterpreted or okay. interpreted all of what they knew about ancient Greeks at well, that point in this particular know, is way. Is it an interpretation or a misinterpretation? It depends what sources you read, but... I mean, today people talk about it being kind of like a a very large um, kind of umbrella approach to ancient Greek theater that probably was not true. But they they decided or they came to the conclusion that this was probably done. And so they wanted to try and emulate that in a new kind of art form. And so the idea was creating a drama, a theatrical drama that was sung throughout instead of spoken. And so part of that would have means having accompaniment music. Mm -hmm. To this and so they start working on these things and one of the, their members Jacopo Perry who was a composer and Jacopo Corsi they team up with Ottavio Renuncini another member of the Camerata and they create this sung throughout drama called Daphne and they base mm-hmm. it on an excerpt from Ovid's Metamorphosis 
in book one. And so this is also really important in the history of opera that like the first five or six operas that are written as we consider opera today are all based on excerpts from Ovid's Metamorphosis. So is there a recording of Daphne? So Daphne, there isn't much recording of it because most of the music is lost, mm -hmm. even though the libretti has survived. Um, so we don't have much from Daphne, but we have some from later things. So they create this work and it's performed during the carnival season in Italy mm -hmm. when a lot of kind of theatrical things were performed at the Palazzo Corsi is when it makes its premiere in 1598. Okay. It's before the turn of the century. But we've lost all of that music, so we don't really know what it sounds like. Although we know that there was a kind of like recitative style to it, or what we say like declamatory style, mm -hmm. where it wasn't incredibly um, melodic. And it's not the kind of thing where you could remember all of the melodies really easily. It was more like sung recitation type of thing. And that's how the whole art form kind of started. And then, but there, people are pretty intrigued by this and they're, they're really into this whole concept of drama sung throughout. So then in 1600, there's a big wedding happening and it's the wedding of King Henry IV of France and Maria de' Medici. And the Medicis are super powerful in Florence, right? And in Italy generally as bankers at this time. And so there's this big royal wedding happening. And so they are commissioned, Jacopo Perry is commissioned to write one of these sung dramas, theatrical dramas for their wedding. And so he writes Eurydice in 1600, again, taken from an excerpt from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. And so he writes the music and Renuncini again writes the libretti and this is performed for this wedding. And actually Jacopo Perry sang the title role at the, at the festivities. Yes. He is a renaissance man. He is. Uh, and hey. Hey Look at what you did there. Look what I did. But it's really interesting that they keep drawing from, or there's, drawing from Ovid's Metamorphosis and the story of Eurydice to be performed at a wedding is kind of dark mm -hmm. because in the story of Eurydice and Orfeo, her, her groom, she's, it takes place on her wedding day. Eurydice's marrying Orfeo and she gets like bit by a snake or something and dies on her wedding day. And then <laughs> uh, Orfeo goes down to like down to the underworld to bring her back up to the land of the living using the power of music to convince um, like the person guarding the river sticks to let him cross and basically convince uh, everyone guarding her in purgatory or in Hades or wherever she is to like let him bring her back to the realm of the living. But then in the story, in the source material, um, the, the kind of, I think the task that he's given is you, yes, you can bring her back, but you have to lead her all the way out without looking back at her, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the story, he looks back and then she, she's condemned to death because he, he looks back right. when she calls his name. And so, but then, so they had to kind of adapt the story to make it not so terrible uh, <laughs> for <laughs> these like wedding festivities and that type That's of such thing. A um, but so Jacopo Perry is commissioned to write this. Eurydice. But then his fellow camarada friend, Giulio Caccini, was also pretty taken with the story of Eurydice, and this is Francesca's father. Mm -hmm. And he actually is writing his own version, his own 
like opera of this at the same time that Jacopo Perry is writing it for this royal wedding. And Giulio Caccini decides that he wants to like beat him to the press. So he actually had no performance date for his version of Eurydice, but he ended up publishing his score six weeks before the Jacopo Perry premiere. What an asshole. <laughs> but then his opera isn't actually performed until two years later. So it's like, what was the point of that? I'm not sure why he was like so determined to it's get like his. Dick, it's like, like a dick measuring contest, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so he can have the first year of DJ. What was that, Elspeth? <laughs> I said it's like a dick measuring contest. Gonna whip it out and see who's got a bigger one. Uh, no, I Boys. think in that scenario, it's who's got a quicker one. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say something. I'm not. Let's move on. Okay. Right. right. Everybody loses in that scenario. Uh, oh, right. Are there recordings of any? So of these? there are recordings of some of these. I'm pretty sure there's some of Jacopo Perry's Eurydice. Okay. Most of the music has been lost for these things, but we'll find. We'll play a little bit of Jacopo Perry's Eurydice. Great. And then, well, let's listen to that now. And then afterwards, we'll listen to Giulio Caccini's. Jacopo, or your Giulio Caccini's. Giulio Caccini's, Jacopo Perry's. You're a DJ. Say that like, ten times. Ty- fast. Ty- it was like Tyler Perry presents. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Medea's, Christmas. Medea's Orfeo. Medea's Orfeo. You're a DJ. You're a DJ. Right. If I Later. Okay, so this is Jacopo Perry's You're a DJ. Crescono le gioie dentro il mio petto, mentre ognuno di voi par che dal bel guardo serendo
And then this is Giulio Caccini's Yoridice. but he wasn't best. But he wasn't last. Okay, so then... <laughs> Wait, can from... I ask quickly? Can I interrupt yes. and ask why yeah. metaphor- metamorphosis was the it source was material the for so text. long? Yeah. I don't know why that was so incredibly popular. I think it was partially because it had all kinds of things in it. Like there were animals and there were spirits and there were humans and gods and goddesses. Like there were... I think it was just such a popular story and it was is, connected with the ancient Greeks that it was kind of, it became the trend to write things based that on this. Is that still carries weight like as a piece of literature or more just a historical reference? I think it still uh, bears weight as a piece of literature. I mean, we had to yeah. study it in high school. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's I Ovid, so it's, it's considered like part of classical literature. <laughs> Yeah, we do. Arizona does rank 48th in education out of right. 50. The, the other reason why this story was so popular was because, especially in the Eurydice part of Metamorphosis, music is like this power mm-hmm. in the story, right? It's music that convinces the underworld to like let Eurydice go. Because Orpheus goes down and he plays his harp, and then, right. and so the idea that it's all about the power of music, and so that's right. why it so it's encapsulating fi- 
kind of their thought of what they're trying to do with this art form, whatever right. it is, is say that, you know, oh, well, the, the real value is in the music. Right, right. Okay. So then um, along comes Claudio Monteverdi, who's working at the Mantuan mm. court, which is geographically in a different place than Florence, where all of this kind of early opera has been unraveling in 1598 and 1600. And so I read somewhere a long time ago that people believe that Monteverdi was at this wedding of the, uh, at the celebrations of King Henry IV of France and Maria de' Medici. I could not find that again, like that particular fact again when I went researching earlier this week. But I remember reading that at some point that he was somehow exposed to Jacopo Perry's Eurydice and he was like, well, this is a pretty, a pretty great idea, but like you're not quite doing it as well as you could. And so mm-hmm. then he writes his version of the story, which is L'Orfeo, that makes its premiere in 1607. And he writes the music, the librettist is Alessandro Strigio, and he actually takes it more from, or it's mostly from book 10, the story of Eurydice, which is different from the story of Daphne, which is from book one okay. in Metamorphosis. Anyway, and so he plans his version of this sung throughout theatrical experience for the carnival season in Mantua, and which is where he was working for the court there. And so then all of that music survives, that whole opera survives. And so because it's the earliest surviving opera in completion, we kind of consider it the beginning of opera as we understand it today. But at this time, none of these men would have used the word opera. They would call, each of them have like slightly different things. I think Monteverdi's was called like fabula in musica, Mm -hmm. right? Or fable in music. And then there were others that were like theatrico something or other. So they didn't really have a word for it yet, but... They were all trying to do the same thing, which was have a, a drama sung throughout that's staged with costumes and and had some kind of like storytelling narrative element to it, which so, is what set it apart from the intermedi, which were not really like a cohesive story. They were just kind of like intermission entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we know when, or I imagine this is coming later, when the term opera is introduced? Was that just like way after the fact? It comes into being a little bit later because you don't really get opera as an industry until uh, sixteen, like thirty-seven or something, when the first opera house, public opera house, opens in Venice. Because up until this point, when we're talking here, like carnival season and the wedding, and all of these are happening in like private courts, mm-hmm. right? In private settings with like wealthy patrons. And so these were not things that were designed necessarily for public entertainment. And it's not until a little bit later in Venice when this starts to spread a little bit, then people in Venice decide to open up like a publicly funded or public opera house where the public can buy single tickets to things or boxes. Um, they can like buy the whole box and then they run operas all throughout carnival season. I'd have to look at the exact date that the word opera begins to be used in a standard way. Mm-hmm. But the word opera just means work, right? And so it's a very nebulous term that over time has come to be specifically associated with this type of theatrical sung throughout entertainment. And then also I was reading that the term orchestra actually was used at this time in the time of Monteverdi just to refer to the floor that was like in front of the stage. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, and it was generally referred to 
um, as like the area where dancing would happen mm -hmm. in front of the stage. And so this is also connected with like the French influence as well, because the French were really into dancing. Um, but it started as just a term that meant like the floor in front of the stage. And then the French would always have lots of dancing that happened there. And then over time, that's just where the musicians would sit, right, or be placed when they were accompanying these operas. And that's also why in opera houses, we always call that main level of seating the orchestra level. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't because that it, so funny? I yeah. would have thought that that naming would have come in the opposite direction, where it's named for the orchestra that plays. But it's actually, that's why we call the orchestra the right. orchestra. That's so cool. I didn't know Yeah. That. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty neat, too, because you know, this a, a geographical space, the name for that geographical space, then over time becomes associated with the ensemble that pl is sitting there and plays, right? Right, right? And then now we call like a group of musicians that are in a particular kind of standard collection of instruments, an orchestra, but it initially just meant the floor, like in front of the stage. And so in this, in this initial time period, the orchestras were very small, right? They were very small and like not at all the instruments that we have today. So in Monteverdi um, and Jacopo Perry, it would have been the same. It's like a lot of plucked string instruments and we call that the continuo. So that could have been a harpsichord. It could have been lutes. It could have been uh, chitarone, which are like really tall lutes. Um, chitarone. Yeah, chitarone. And so there's a story that I also remember uh, reading where um, because the chitarone would like stick up in the the neck of the instrument would kind of be in front of the stage mm -hmm. sometimes composers in the early days of opera would do interesting things where the chitarone would become like a forest that the character is like walking through they would like turn it up on so it's really tall or mm -hmm. like pull it up so it'd become a prop almost <laughs> and oh, then cool. that type of thing um just because I, they, I they were rather cool. large and instruments Elspeth shakes her head <laughs> no, I think that's interesting. It's innovative. Cool. Right. And so, not, I did not do that. So it's actually not until opera in this early form gets imported to France mm -hmm. that stringed violin instruments get attached with the art form because in France at this time, in the court, in Louis's court, you had the violins of the king, right? The 20, mm -hmm. 24, whatever number of violins of the king that they used to play for ballets. And I think it was Louis XIV, right, had, was really... I think so. The one who was really obsessed with ballet, and he was like the sun king and that type of thing, right? And so he had this violin corps as part of the musicians at his court, and they would play for ballets. And then the French were the ones that kind of meld that sound of stringed violin instruments with what was happening with Italian opera, and they kind of bring them together. And they also bring dance into the mix, too. They So the French, in French opera, you have this huge component of dance that becomes much bigger in France than it does in Italy in terms of integrating it into the opera. But you, so it's not until a little bit later when opera starts traveling outside of Italy that you get this core of like many string instruments that are bowed strings. Mm -hmm. Up until this point, it's all like plucked instruments like a harpsichord or lute or something like that. Do you know when the first semblance of like these bowed strings originated for some reason i always thought that it was just like a continuous timeline that we so you start out with these plucked instruments just because the bowed ones didn't exist and then they all kind of morphed on the same timeline but it sounds like from what you just said that 
the bowed strings were available as opera was starting, just in a different place, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, violins certainly existed, and early bowed string instruments existed at the time that opera was making its, like, in these early, early works by Jacopo Perry and that type of thing, but they weren't, well, number one, they weren't standardized in the way that they are today. Like, we have, you know, a violin is a certain size, and a viola is a certain size, and a cello is a certain size, and a bass is a certain size, and they didn't really have that yet, like, codified at that time, which is why sometimes you see people, or you can, like, go to museums, and you can see instruments that look like a cello, but they're a little bit smaller, and they have, like, six strings or ten strings, that type of thing. Um, and so we had these bowed instruments, but... The Italians were not harnessing the bowed instrument in the same way that the French were. They weren't like gathering, you know, 20 or, or 25 violins, early violins together and kind of creating an ensemble out of them. But the French were. And so that's where you start getting this idea of like a an ensemble of violins that could create a more powerful sound than like individual instruments or small groupings and so it was more just like the trend in Italy where these like plucked instruments of different kinds for this kind of theatrical storytelling in music and nice. yeah so the vi fusing violins or like a large string section with an operatic orchestra or ensemble is something that slowly happens over time and mm. so and that's because of the French the French influence and but another Oh, please go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Ask I was going to say another uh, more general music question mm -hmm. that I have is in regards to notation. So when did we start to see the more modern notation that we see now? And mm. if, if it wasn't as this was starting, then, then what was the notation like? How specific were the pitches, say, for singers in these initial operas was right. this something where there was a level of improvisation there was so it's early notation if you look at the scores of Orfeo or whatever is around still of Jacopo Perry it's kind of like a very early version of notation as we know it so it's a little bit more advanced and different than like mensural notation or like ch sorry chant notation in um, like th that dominated a lot of the Renaissance. It's mm -hmm. interesting because it's actually happening at a time where a lot is changing in how we notate things and people are trying to come up with better ways of notating rhythm than mensural notation, which is very complicated ways of notating groups of three and groups of two mm -hmm. um, in rhythmic structure. But by this point, like pitch is very concretely notated. And so it's just rhythm that was kind of on the, in a, kind of flux period of how you notate it. But if you look at Monteverdi's score for L'Orfeo, the pitches are very clear, rhythms are pretty clear in the score as well. The thing that's interestingly not that clear is what instruments play what part. Because the mm -hmm. singer's pitches were notated, but um, the instruments were not actually clearly labeled to exactly what plucked instrument he wanted to be played. So it mm -hmm. just could be like any plucked instrument could mm -hmm. play that particular part, the continual part. And the only parts that he really did write out separate parts for each instrument was in Orfeo, there's like a core of trumpets and very early trumpets. So they have no valves, but like different lengths of trumpets that could play different pitch areas. Uh -huh. So there's like five different types of trumpets, I think, that 
play or like a collection of them. I can't remember the exact number. And he indicates what kind of pitch area of each trumpet is. So there's like the clarino trumpet that plays. And But other than that, the score is fairly ambiguous as to what people are supposed to play at what times or what instrument, I should say. But the singers are all mapped out because it could have been any one of those continual instruments Mm -hmm. of that family. So, but Monteverdi publishes this score and it's also very interesting, the history of music. Like Monteverdi is part of this very large debate about uh, old style versus new style. And so we call this the Monteverdi Artusi debate about uh, pitches and equal temperament as part of this and like different types of harmony. And so it's really after Monteverdi that you kind of get this push towards this, or Monteverdi is part of this push towards a new style of notating things and conceptualizing harmony and rhythm. And and that really kind of kicks off our trend towards modern notation and in the grand scheme of things towards equal temperament. Mm -hmm. But... So opera, then Monteverdi kind of sets all of this in motion. And then around the 1630s, I think it is that Venice opens its first like public opera house. And this really takes opera in the kind of like fantastical direction that it's that it goes in where because they want people to buy tickets Mm -hmm. for it, like the sets need to be massive and huge and like special effects become a really big thing. And these like larger than life stories just become blown out of proportion. And everything is about like capturing the public's interest, right? So opera becomes an industry as opposed to this like privately funded, like intellectual theatrical Mm -hmm. pursuit, right? And so that's when in Venice, you start getting the operas of Cavalli, right? And so, which Elspeth loves. I love Cavalli. Cavalli so much. <laughs> and, yes, yes, Cavalli. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so you have people like Cavalli in Italy that are part of the early opera industry in the 1630s. And then a little bit later in France, you get Lully, Jean-Baptiste Lully, who starts writing French operas or French versions. He called them tragédies lyriques. Right. And then after Lully, you get Rameau. And so this is kind of the slow, the slow going, um, like rollout of opera. And so it's connected to all of these earlier types of music, like solo song of different kinds in Italy, madrigals, um, theatrical plays, intermedios, uh, sacred plays and morality tales. But it's really this idea of a sung throughout narrative story that's all one cohesive piece that the Florentine Camerata encapsulated and created that was considered so innovative that hadn't been done before. So, yeah. And then, interestingly, in terms of like this traveling to other places, um, Monteverdi's Orfeo was actually not performed in England until 300 years after it made its... Whoa. It's Italian like mm-hmm. world premiere, right? In 1607 or whatever date it was, 1607. So there were other operatic things like precursors of opera happening in England, but the kind of the first Italian opera as we know it today didn't have its English premiere until 300 years later. Well, oh, didn't wow. you say yeah. that, was it Fr- Francesca Caccini that was the first person to have an opera performed in more than one country? Yes. Yeah. So and so she was like one generation later. Right. Sort of. I mean, she would have been composing around the same time that her father was composing too. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, and so okay. she's a, like a little bit later, but not a whole generation later. Um, and but so, yes. So the Baroque period I, are starting. Well, I guess I, the starting date on that would be like the the year sixteen hundred through seventeen fifty, right? People generally demarcate it in that way. Um, okay, so all of this early stuff gets lumped in with Baroque, even though it, it took some time to really come into what we associate as Baroque. Right. And it's really, we use Monteverdi's Orfeo as kind of the, the birth of opera or the first full-length opera that has survived as we understand the art form because not only has the whole score survived, which you can't say for anything that came before it, but mm-hmm. also he really felt that the declamatory style of Jacopo Perry um, and this kind of like recitative sung, singing, speaking thing, um, he thought it was fine for some of the opera, but he also wanted other parts of the opera to be much more song-like or Mm -hmm. aria-like or kind of monody-like. And so there were reports I was reading where some people's like early critiques of the Jacopo Perry Eurydice was that it was really boring. <laughs> like they would say, like you know, this style is great nice. for the first few, um, the first few excerpts, but then like over time, you need the music to give you more diversity and be more interesting. And so well, that was something was that I don't know how long it would have been, but Monteverdi tried to have a mixture of both recitative right. and also any arioso type singing is what he called it, and so both like melodic song and declamatory. recitation through music Mm -hmm. and so that's also becomes the building blocks of opera as we know it today like recitative and aria and so that's why we consider Monteverdi like the beginning of opera as we understand it because it had both of these components that were part of it um very interesting so that's how it all begins Mm -hmm. and comes about that is opera's origins um so you can thank the Italians for pizza, pasta, and opera. So, <laughs> all good things. Yes. Although, let's be honest, what we think of as pizza is different from what Italians think of as pizza. Yeah, and I know That's that true. like people were probably making pasta in other parts of the world in different forms. Doesn't matter for a long time, but pizza and pasta as we understand it today, and opera as we and opera today, um, well, goes back to that. So, well, yeah, should we? wrap up with some music yes so i think we should listen to um some monteverdi okay a good example some good examples of Mm -hmm. the different variety that monteverdi gave you in the opera at some points he has choruses where everybody's involved and it's very dance-like and so this is one example from the beginning of orfeo where you get the chorus
And then other times he has these very uh, declamatory or, or, or recitative type things and in kind of the, the style of Jacopo Perry. Mm-hmm. And then he has more song-like sections, which are closer to what we consider arias today. And he also has an overture to the whole thing. So the operatic overture that kicks everything off for Orfeo, it sounds like this. some cool like sonic things and so the really popular one is Posente Spirito where you have Orfeo trying to get the spirit to let Eurydice or let him cross the river Styx to go rescue Eurydice and there's these kind of like musical bits that you hear like off stage or from a far distance and so you have a kind of like sonic effects where he's using music in a very geographical and dramatic kind of way. Oh, 
So to play out, what do you want to listen to? I don't know, Kyle. Well, I I was going to say just quickly, it's amazing how, so this was essentially, yeah, over 400 years ago Mm -hmm. that this was produced, but it still has the major components of what an opera is and what we associate as an opera. And if somebody... You know, when somebody composes an opera today, they're still incorporating these major parts, even though it sounds different for various reasons. Mm-hmm. It is amazing that this art form and, and these works of art are, are have now been put together in the same kind of way for 400 years. Yeah. I, I just feel like you, you don't see very many things that are put together in that same kind of way for that long. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think that even though opera has gone through many different kind of, cult- there are so many different cultural histories and it kind of forks, the history of opera forks on all these different cultural contexts, but still you have these components that come back again and again and remain an integral part of the art form. Right. Let's do a yeah. follow up in the next couple of weeks that is, you know, the, find a better phrase for it, but the, the forks of opera. The paths, the divergent paths of opera. For sure. And what it looks like. All right. Well, what do you want to play out to? It beats me. You're asking the wrong guy. We'll pick some uh, Monteverdi because he's our father of opera. father of it all. Father of it all. So we'll we'll find some delightful Monteverdi to play for you. All right. Until next time, I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. And I'm Kyle. Thanks for joining us in a brand new year for a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Find us on Facebook. Give us a great review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.